The words that we have just sung, we're familiar with them for those of us who have been in the faith for quite a while. The danger that we face is that we're familiar with them. And things that we become familiar with can sometimes fade away, can't they? If you've been married for any amount of time, I'm 19, almost 19 years into our marriage, and uh, you can take people for granted uh, when, you, when you're around them all the time. And, and uh, I was just thinking this morning, um, when I saw my wife, how, how beautiful she was and, and um, how lucky she is to have me. I meant to, uh, it goes the other way around. Okay. How lucky I am to uh, have such a beautiful bride. And, but those things, you know, in the daily mix, you, you, get, uh, you get a mix. And so today is a, a message that I think many of us know, but it is uh, worth reminding ourselves. It's one of the reasons we come together, by the way. There, there are many reasons the body of Christ gathers. One of them is to remind ourselves. Throughout the Old Testament, God often said, let me remind you of a couple things. And that one particular theme that he reminded them of over and over and over, we're going to take a look at. Because there are some expectations, I think, in, in the relationships that we have. There should be. Expectations are good things. Expectations help us to... Uh, to uh, know what we're aiming for and, and know when we've achieved them and when we not. We all have expectations. Uh, you know, when you go to a, um, a restaurant, let's say you go to a chain restaurant like Outback or something like that, you, you have an expectation the chicken's going to taste the same as it did last time or something similar, right? You, if you get it and it's like totally different, you're like, wow, oh, that's kind of, uh, I'm not sure I want to come back because I expected it to be the same. We expect that that, that uh, will be uh, being taken care of in this country, that will be kept safe, that the police force is on their job and there's an expectation that they're, they're doing it. We're, we expect that our food is being kept safe by the FDA and uh, they're, they're monitoring things and making sure that everything's okay. This week I, had, I, I ate a lot of raw veggies and stuff like that and this week I, I had one of those bags of broccoli, you know, where it's already uh, pre-washed and, and probably triple washed and, you know, and then cut up. And so you can just clip open the bag and, and eat and go, grab and go, right? And so I'm eating this, these, um, uh, these broccoli chunks and, and uh, you're afraid it's going to get gross, isn't it? Like I <laughs> found something in it, like a, a mouse or something. Wouldn't that be cool? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, so I'm eating this, and I'll, I'll, about the fifth piece in, I'm, I, I like chunk on something that was hard as a rock. Well, I'm, I'm not expecting that with broccoli. I'm expecting, you know, something kind of softer, chewier, and you don't expect in the bag something rock. So I, I, I spit it out on a plate. That, that, this is the gross part. It's always a little good to have a gross part in the story. Anyway, I, so I, I spit it on the plate, and I'm going through it, and I'm like, what was it? It was hard as a rock. Well, it was a rock. There was a rock, there was a rock about the size of a, 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 a marble in my broccoli. I thought, what is this, rockily? Sorry, that's a really bad joke. I know, it's awful. <laughs> it's going to get worse, actually. I got some really bad ones coming at you. I'm like, wow, I didn't expect that coming. I mean, it's such a disappointment. When, like the Super, let's take the last Super Bowl. Anybody have some expectations that at least it's going to be somewhat even? Especially the Broncos fans. I'm like, wow, it was so disappointing. There are expectations that we have in life that I think are healthy. I think as we go through life, 
the expectations change. Our kids, you, most of you know, they're 9 and 10 years old. The expectations for them are homework, clean your room, make sure you take your dishes to the dishwasher, all those things. I don't expect them to have a job yet, to earn a, a keep. And we're just one year away from that, and then they can get out and work. It's not until you get to be a teenager. So, you know, you get a car, you think, okay, well, you've got to make the payments, you've got to pay the insurance. There's some expectations built in there. But I'm, I'm 16, I'm not expected to take care of a child, I don't have one yet. But then I get older, I get married, and now I'm expected to be a, a good husband. And, and a lot of times in first year of marriage, that's the, the thing that causes rough waters. You know, you, the expe- oh, I didn't know you expected me to put the lid on, back on the toothpaste. I didn't know. It's a lot of silly things like that. But there are expectations that are brought into the relationships. And then you have a child, and then you're expected to, to make sure you're being a good parent. All through life, the spiritual life is no different. There are different expectations in different stages of our spiritual life. Now, as our human life exists, there are many stages. When you're a child, an infant, and a child, and a teenager, and a young adult, and married, and then with kids, and all those things, they change. But I think the spiritual life is much more simple. Because if you look at a person's spiritual life, I think you can divide it simply into two. Before Christ and after Christ. Now, the realistic uh, uh, shock, stunning reality is that some people will live their entire life with just one stage of spirituality. It is true that the Bible says and that it matches with the reality of human experience that many people will live and die in the first stage of their life before Christ. In other words, they will never have given their life. They will never have had a faith experience. They will never do an exchange from the old life to the new. Today, you may be sitting here. In fact, you say, you know what? I don't want God. I I don't want nothing to do. God will give you that right. You can live and die without him. I will tell you that the outcome of that, the consequence, as the scripture says, is awful, is horrible. Not only horrible eternally, but I think so much more weight than you need to carry in this lifetime. Too many people try to carry the weight of this life on their own without God and without Christ in their life. God says, oh, I, don't, I never intended for you to do that. I want to be part of your life. And so there's that part we have of our life before Christ. And then there, we have If you're a follower of Christ, then you have after Christ. You have after that decision, that that exchange of life, the old for the new. You have that. And the expectations are different in each one. This week, our worship pastor, Clay, uh, texted me. He said, hey, I kind of know where you're going this week. And here's a a new word that I've not seen. It was at the top list on Google+. And it's a phobia. I had not heard about this phobia. It's, it's um, adalophobia. Adalophobia. Oh, why do I even try five-syllable words? The fear of not being good enough. Many people have this fear in the first stage of spiritual life because God is not a being that we can go to Publix or go to the mall or see Him physically in this stage of existence. 
Therefore, for many people, it's a hidden formula of some type. And they fear, am I being good enough? Is that the expectation that God puts on my life in order to come to Him, in order to have a relationship with Him? How do you know this fear exists in people? Well, it's religion. Religion around the world is the solution to adolophobia, that you're not sure that you're good enough. Therefore, you have to make sure that you're doing this and this and this and this and this. In the New Testament, we see this um, in, in the experience of those who haven't yet had a, an, an encounter with Christ. For example, in the book of Acts, two followers of Jesus, their names were Paul and Silas. If you know the story, you're familiar. But for the sake of those that don't know the story, two followers of Christ, Paul and Silas, were put into jail because they spoke out loud their faith of Christ, in Christ. This was not acceptable. This was not politically correct in that culture at that time. And so they were imprisoned for their faith. There are many people around the world, by the way, that are imprisoned by their faith. My wife sat on the couch last night watching this this uh, kind of a documentary piece on her laptop. And just I could tell it was just heavy on her uh, in North Korea where the pastor who has planted uh uh, 500 churches there, underground churches, uh, believed to be executed for his faith. It's still happening today. I mean, people being imprisoned and losing their life over their faith is such a, a strange phenomena here in the United States where we have freedom of expression, thank God. But not in some countries. It's still going on. So this this story is very real. In this story, Paul and Silas are in prison. God miraculously causes an earthquake. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Now that's too crazy. Not crazy for a God, as we've sung about today, who can speak creation into existence. After the first page of the Bible, I'm like, anything can happen with a creator like that. There's nothing surprising. So the God who created this big rock we call earth can also shake it, by the way. And that day, that evening, he shook the planet. And as a result of this earthquake, the jail cell opened up. The doors of the jail opened up. Well, in that culture, the jailkeeper was responsible for his prisoners. And if the prisoners got loose, then he would automatically lose his job. It was in, or lose his life. It was in the contract. If they get away, you're in trouble, you die. Because the doors opened, it wasn't his fault. Paul and Silas were free to go. He was getting ready to throw himself on a sword and die. He said, that's it. My, my life is over. Paul and Silas said, not so fast. Make sure that you've got the whole picture. You can get saved. And so he comes to Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. And the jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, the question that everyone should ask if you're in the first part of the spiritual life, what must I do to be saved? Now, I've accentuated the word do because that's what most people think. I must do something. In order to get a paycheck, I have to do something. I just can't show up to work looking nice. I have to actually do something. I have to put some action. What must I do? And Paul and Silas said, ah, again, not so fast. You don't have to do anything because good news, actually the best news you're going to get all day, all your life, it's already been done. 
So they say this to him, here's what you do. Here is the expectation of this first stage of spiritual life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I love the old version of this, believe on the Lord Jesus, because sometimes we can use that phrase, believe in, like believe in Santa Claus. Like I just need to agree with the historical facts of Christianity. No, believe on him as if you're throwing yourself on him, saying, I cannot save myself. I cannot erase from my soul the sins that are there. I cannot clean myself up. For that reason, Christ gave his son. He laid miraculously all the sins of every single human being, past, present, and future, and infused them into his son, our Savior. And at that moment, he substituted us. He substituted Christ for us. And we say, oh, I'm not going to trust in my own self. I'm going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can be saved. That is the expectation of the first phase of spirituality, the first half of spirituality. We know that story, most of us. We have sung it today. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I'm thankful that those phrases are not reversed. I'm thankful that it's not all to him I owe in order for him to pay the price. The price has already been paid. All I'm doing is responding to what he has done for us. All you are doing is saying, God, it's already been done. I believe in that. Now, that's the expectation for unbelievers. Today is an expectation for us who have been saved, for us who have been redeemed, for us who have said, okay, I'm going to believe in Christ because if we are followers of God, I would think, I would expect that you would say, okay, I want to just in a nutshell format, understand, are there expectations on my life? And can you whittle them down to just a few things? And the scripture does exactly that for us this morning. Now, Let me reiterate one more time. I've said it already a few times, but I'm going to say it one more time. The expectations on our life as believers in Christ do not come from God in order for us to win his favor. We have won his favor through Christ. We cannot win his favor through what we do. There is not enough. That you can do. There's not enough do's that you can do in order to get his favor because he's already done it. Are we clear? Now, having said that, the book of James, he he begins to write and, and writes on a fine line. But it's a line that I think we often can miss. James chapter 1 verse 23. James says this. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and then after looking at himself goes away and immediately, keyword, forgets. He forgets what he looks like. James is saying, look, you're redeemed. You're changed. You cannot forget that because when you remember that, it will you'll understand what the expectations are that God has in your life. It is easy, as I began 
our time together, it is easy to let those things slide away. It is easy for us to forget who we are. In fact, James is saying, don't forget who you are. So a few weeks ago, I was uh, in my garage. I went out in my garage to empty some trash. We keep our trash cans out in the garage. And I went out there, and one of our lids is hard to get off. It's, you know, once you snap it down, you know, I, I was out there. And so I'm, I'm out there trying to struggle with the, the trash can lid. And one of my boys came behind me and opened up the garage door while I was out there. <laughs> garage door starts to go up. I uh, didn't think too much about it and, until the entire door was up, and I'm still struggling. And I realized, hey, I'm out here standing here in my boxer shorts. <laughs> I had forgotten who I was. I had forgotten where I was. I forgot that I was, how I was clothed or not clothed. In that moment, I'm like, oh, it was just like, huh. And you know, that stark remembrance. This is what, I know some people are already finished. I can't believe he said boxer shorts in church. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. Get alive. This is what James is saying. Don't forget. Don't get caught. Don't don't find yourself living this Christian life. Remind yourself, and sometimes a stark reminder. Whoa, door's up. Oh, right. Because when we forget who we are, that's when we stop acting like we are expected to act. Make sense? We're going to turn today to a story, a picture, an amazing picture in a little book called Micah. If you want to find that book, it's a hard one to find. It's uh, one of the minor prophets. It's uh, at the end of the Old Testament. It's about six or seven books back. I always say when we're looking at these little, these they're called minor prophets that don't feel embarrassed if you have to go to the table of contents. That's all right. The table of contents is not an evil book. And uh, we somehow think we're a lesser Christian if we can't find all of a sudden, uh, Nahum, all right, I got it. You know, that's, uh, it's nothing more spiritual because you can find a little book in the Bible. So we're in, we're in uh, the book of Micah. Let me set it up for you. This book is not written to people in the first stage of spirituality. This book is written to those who are already in, so to speak. They are redeemed. It's an important framework to understand. Now, we understand that in the Old Testament, Christ had not come. But God was providing means of redemption, as he'll say and tell and remind them in this story. These were a redeemed people. These were redeemed persons. This was a redeemed nation. God had provided for them a way to be redeemed. He begins this story by opening up the garage door to get their attention to say, oh, wow, okay, forgot. The garage door opens in Micah chapter 6 in the second half of chapter, verse 2. The Lord has a case against who? Against his people. Not against the world in this instance. Not against unbelievers. The Lord has a case against his people. He said, I'd like a word with you. 
the, door, the garage door just came up. He is lodging a charge against his, his people, Israel, at the time. Now, if I'm standing there, a little blood just rushed out of my head. Like, wow. It's kind of like I was in the garage. Like, wow. God has a charge. There's some expectations that are not being met in this second phase. Not to win my favor, but now that you have won my favor, I want to remind you of certain things. Now, he begins at this point to paint an amazing picture. If I said to you, who wrote the Gospels? You, if you know anything about the Bible, you'd say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I propose to you that the Gospel of Christ is all through the Old Testament. Pictures. In fact, you remember, there, there are pictures in the New Testament. He looks back and, and you remember the brazen serpent. There was, a, there was a picture for you. It's like a comic book. It's like a, a picture book. You remember the, the ark and what that meant. You remember Jonah in three days swallowed up, but he came back to life. Christ says, it's like the resurrection. I mean, so many pictures. One of my most favorite places in the scripture, I say it often, is the, after the resurrection, Christ comes up on a couple of disciples who walk into a place called Emmaus. And, and remember, he said, if you know the story, he opened up the scripture while he had the Old Testament. He opened up the Old Testament and said, let me show you some pictures. Of who I was. Ah, people say, anywhere in the Bible, where would you like to be? Right on that road. I would have loved to sit around the campfire with Christ that night. Like, wow, in Nahum, in Micah. You mean there was a, the gospel was there? Watch this. It is an amazing picture of the gospel right here in the story. God begins to bring to their remembrance how they were redeemed. Micah chapter 6. Now we're in verse 4. I'd like to remind you, God said, I brought you up out of Egypt. It has been the story of the scripture since the Garden of Eden. See, God could have said to Adam, I came in the garden that day. I noticed that you were naked. I covered your son. You didn't. You tried to cover yourself. You went, you went to the fig leaf manufacturer. That wasn't good enough. You were still half naked. I covered you. I pursued you. It is the story from beginning to end. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. You see, Egypt in the Bible, as it's portrayed in these pictures, is a picture of us before we've come to God. Because all of us were enslaved to sin, enslaved to ourself, enslaved to our destination. And then God says, I want to take you out of that. How easy it is to forget what slavery felt like. What it felt like to, to be lost, to, to have the weight of Egypt on our shoulders. And God said, I brought you up. Time after time after time after time after time in the Old Testament... God says, I am the Lord, your God. I want to remind you, I brought you up out of Egypt. It is the story of God. Then he goes on to say, I sent Moses to you. You see, it's the story of Christ. I sent a savior to you. You didn't come looking for him. You didn't box store order him. You didn't go to Amazon. You didn't satellite up. You didn't build a tower of Babel. No, I came down to you. 
I sent you Moses and also his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. Now watch, key word of the day, my people. I want, you, I want you to hear the warmth. He says, I've got a charge against you. He begins by opening the garage door, waking them up a little bit. But then listen to God's heart. My people, you're my people of all the earth. You're my followers. You're the redeemed ones. You're the ones that I brought up. You're the ones I sent someone to, my people. Remember. Remember. Don't forget. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Then you're like, okay, I'm out. What in the world is that, right? Be honest. You're at home. You're reclining. You're doing a little morning devotional. You pull that out. And they're like, um, nah, I'm going over here. God is love. Where was that part, right? Balak. Well, who is that, right? Honestly, these are the parts you're like, and forget it. I can't say to you enough that it is your job to dig. It's not just to pay someone to have a digger. It's your job to dig. And that's an exciting thing about discipleship. We just finished writing the next chunk of it. And in that chunk, the disciples get to learn how to dig on their own. And look, it's me. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. It's me. I can do it. Sometimes you can do You could Google Balak and think, what is that? And just do a little study and it would lead you to some places in the scripture. Like, okay, it's not as hard as you think, but it does take some leaning forward to say, okay, if God is saying to us, my people remember Balak, then for heaven's sakes, I should look up what it means. Do you think? Huh? Huh? All right. Am I scaring you here? When you go back and look at the story, it's important to look at the story. Let me just clue you in on what's going on here, and then you can look it up for yourself. Here's the nutshell version. Back in the Old Testament, God's people were becoming so strong and they had so much potential that there was a king named Balak. He hated the people. And he called this guy Balaam, and he said, you're God's man. He was God's man. He said, Balaam. I understand you've got a connection with God. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Stupid request. Could you put a curse on God's people? It's like, okay. Like, really? He said, okay, let me, let me give it a shot. And he gave a blessing to God's people instead. Oh, Balak was, uh, Balak was so, I uh, just ticked at that. And he came back. He said, hey, I thought I asked you to put a curse. You put a blessing. Do it again. And it put another curse. And Balaam said, okay, let me give it a shot. Let me get with God. And he came back and he gave him a blessing. He said, oh, you're going to be a great people. And Balak's like, wow, you're ticking me off. Four times it happened. Here's the picture. Behind the scenes. See, the nation didn't know this. God's people didn't know this. That there was this, there was this thing going on. There was this conflict going on. It's like the book of Job. You remember at the beginning, Satan shows up. Job had no idea. The whole book is about Job having no idea that there was this enemy who was fighting for God's people to blow it, to turn his back on God's people. Don't ever forget, God is saying, I need you to remember that behind the scenes, there is an enemy who hates you. There is an enemy who wants to chew you up. He's like a lion. He's prowling. He's surveying all the time, all the time, looking, 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 all the time, so he can eat your lunch. God said, don't forget that. 
And don't forget that I inspired Balaam to take care of you. Behind the scenes, we have a warrior. His name is Christ. We have an advocate. His name is Christ. We have one who's standing for it. His name is Christ. And God said, don't forget it. That's how important you are to me. Then he goes on. He says, here's another thing. Watch. When God says something more than once, I pay attention. Remember. He says it again. Okay, God. What is the expectation here you're trying to put into my mind, my heart? Remember. Then he says, remember your journey from Shidem. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. It may not be accurate, but it's safe. Now, my 10-year-old, no joke, was looking over my shoulder when I was studying. Oh, he was into that word. <laughs> he couldn't wait. I'm like, you pipe it down and you say it's Shidem. All right, we're going with that. Remember your journey to Shidem to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You're, again, you're like, What? Do a Google, do a little search, find a little Bible program you can find. Okay, you ready? Unbelievable picture here. Unbelievable picture. Now watch. Here's what happens. I I got a little map for you. Now, I'm going to give you a little history lesson. It could potentially be boring for the next three or four minutes. So if you want to take a little cat nap, this would be a good time to do it. You see the word Shidem and Gilgal, and then underneath that is Jericho. Egypt is down here far left off the screen. When they were taken out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness for decades, as you remember. They, the way they traveled is they went way up and then they went way down below the screen. And then when they entered into the promised land, finally, they came in from the east to the west. That line going down that's red is the Jordan River. You are about to see the gospel according to Micah. Because here's what happens when you go back and you think, I wonder what happened in Shidem. You can find it in your Bible. wonder what happened in Gilgal because God is saying, I'm, an, I'm expecting you to remember this. All right. So now it was easier for them to remember, quite frankly, because it was part of their heritage and they heard the stories. But God's saying, look, don't forget, here's what happened in Shidem. Now, when they were getting ready after decades of wandering in the wilderness, they're finally crossing over into the promised land. The last stop before the Jordan River, River was Shidem. The first stop after the Jordan River was Gilgal. Now, when you read about Shidem, there was a priest. His name was Phineas. And in that that region of Shidem, one of God's people committed immorality and then it spread like wildfire. A plague began to break out. Phineas took a spear and he pierced the originator of that sin. He pierced the sin, and instantly when the blood flowed, when he pierced it, the plague of sin came to a halt. God is saying to us in this story, don't forget, I took you out of slavery. 
I brought you out and I brought you around and someone was pierced in order for the sin of the plague of sin to be stopped. And then you crossed over the Jordan River. This is where Christ was baptized. Anytime you see the Jordan River, it represents for us that picture in baptism. The old is buried. That old wilderness, all of Egypt, it's going away and it's crossing through the Jordan River into the newness of life when they reach Gilgal. And when they reach Gilgal, all the men were circumcised. I hope I don't need to tell you about that. But that's a representative in the scripture that we're cutting away the old so that the new can grow. And what happens in Gilgal is that he says, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The gospel according to Micah. Watch what happens. Micah, or Joshua chapter 5. This is where you find the instance in Gilgal. Now they've crossed over into Gilgal, into the promised land, into Canaan. In Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, he was leading now, by the way, because you might remember that Moses died. He couldn't cross over into the promised land. He says today, what I say to believers, God would say this word today. He said to Joshua, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I didn't modify it. I didn't renovate it. I didn't alter your old sin so that you just become a better person. I didn't give you a self-help book. Certainly you didn't do it on. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. When Christ died on the cross, he's saying, I've rolled away Egypt from you. It's away. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. So the place became called Gilgal to this day. The name Gilgal means one word, rolled, rolled. Verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites remembered. They celebrated the Passover. It's as if they had the Lord's Supper. You see, the Passover was an act of remembrance. This whole story is about don't forget. Don't, for, don't look in the mirror and walk away and forget who you are. They, they celebrated the Passover, which was, which was given because the blood of the lamb was slain and it, was, it saved them and they were called to remember this. Verse 11, the day after Passover, that very day they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped that day. Remember, they were being fed by manna bread from heaven. Stop the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Watch the story. It's the story of the second half of spiritual life. We we're taken out of and led out of Egypt. God sends someone to us so that it can happen. In our terms, it's Christ. He takes us through and he, uh, he pierces sin. The plague of sin stops. He takes us across through baptism where newness of life is given to us because oldness of life is away from us now. He cuts into our heart so that the old is gone. He says in the New Testament, circumcise your heart so that the newness of life can start to grow. We cross over the, and, into Gilgal and 
And then God says, hey, it's no longer that I'm, I'm just going to feed you, but I'm going to start producing fruit in your life. And it begins to grow. What an amazing picture. Do you find this amazing? I find this amazing. Now, with that in mind, with that framework, God is saying, I'm asking you to remi- remember this story. So the listeners hear this story and like, wow, Jesus paid it all. They weren't singing those exact words, but God redeemed us. As we would say, Jesus paid it all. What to him do I owe? Watch what happens back in Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Now that you've opened my garage door, you've shocked me by asking me to remember this story. What is it that you're looking for? What shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings and the calves a year old? Those were the best. Maybe it's quality you're asking for, God. Will you be pleased with 10,000 of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Maybe it's quantity that you're asking for. Maybe I just do more and more and more. Maybe you, maybe that really gets you going, God. Maybe that's how I repay you. Shall I offer the ultimate sacrifice, my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, all my future children for the sin of my soul? You can hear the desperation. Here comes the answer. It comes in the form of a question. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what is it, redeemed people, that God would expect from you? What is it? What is it, O man, that the Lord require of you? Three things. Number one, to act justly. Number two, to love mercy. And number three, to walk humbly with our God. Now, briefly, let me, these are God's expectations for his people when we read these. Now, let's just take them one by one, uh, just briefly here. When I look at the word act justly, you have to keep it in context of this whole story. Remember who you are and what you've received. See, Justice is fairness. He's saying act fair. What that means is saying what you've received, it's only fair that you give it back out. You can't keep it all for yourself. So just this past week, we go to the grocery store. My two sons have two different kind of chips that they like to eat. As you can imagine, siblings never like the, you know, if one likes a dark toast, one likes a light toast, one likes, you know, waffles, one likes pancakes. I mean, you know, you're, you're doing two of everything until you're having a bad day and say, hey, you're going to eat the meatloaf. I don't really care. You can starve or whatever. So you're in the store. Hey, dad, one likes the chips with the nacho cheese. One likes the chips that are salt and pepper or whatever. And they, dad, can please, can you buy me that my own bag of chips? So that it can, I, you know, I can have my flavor. I'm like, okay, fine. Let, let's get the, you know, we'll get the nacho cheese just for you. We're sitting on the couch a little bit later. And uh, he's opened up his bag of chips. I'm like, hey, man, do you mind if I have one of those? You know, since I bought it. I mean, you would have thought I asked for his left arm. He looks over to me like, really? You know, you want a chip? I'm like, I'll take that whole bag away from you like that. 
I purchased the chips. There are 87 chips in the bag. I just wanted one. See, it's the definition of being unjust. See, if we're going to act justly, it's like God saying, remember the story. I took all this time to lay it out to you. Remember the story. Remember Egypt. Remember I sent someone. Remember we pierced sin. All the plague stuff. You received all that. I gave it to you. Remember the story I'm telling it? I gave it to you. I bought the chips. Now, if you want to be, you want the expectation of a receiver, if you're going to act justly, you've got to give it back out. This wasn't anything new. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Your recipients, redeemed people, a message to redeemed people. Only be careful. Moses is writing in Deuteronomy 4, 9. Only be careful and watch yourself closely. Here it is again. So that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Give them out. Teach your children and to their children after them and to their children after them. It's why I'm so desperately passionate about discipleship, quite frankly. Because we're walking away with a bunch of constipated buffet Christians because we've taken it all in as receivers and somewhere it's not healthy. We have to say, we've got to give it back out because we've received this amazing gift from God. I'm slightly excited about it. <laughs> God is saying, come on, redeemed people. Don't keep it for yourself. That would be unfair would it not share the, the the privilege of sharing our faith oh i gotta tell you i got a story from egypt and i was there i couldn't find myself out i tried how many has that have that story i tried to get out it was as if i was enslaved but God sent someone. His name is Christ. You know, he pierced sin, don't you? I no longer ask what I must do to be saved. Because I understood he had done it and stopped the plague. Oh, man, he's starting to produce fruit. See, God said, hey, give a chip out, man. <laughs> give a chip out. There's a, a wonderful story in the New Testament. You remember Christ when he was walking along one day and this guy named Simon said, hey, why don't you come have lunch with me? And Simon invited Jesus into his house. Now, Simon was a religious man. He knew the story. He was one of the redeemed people of the day. He understood that his history included Egypt and Gilgal and Shittim. And Phineas and Balak and Balaam. He knew it. He knew it. And when Christ entered the house, he entered with expectation. Now, Simon had a visitor that day. If you know the story, you know it was a woman. We don't know her name because she was trash to Simon. Her name's not even mentioned in the story, except she was. The sinful woman. Don't you hate when people know you about all your bad stuff? Oh, yeah, there's the, yeah, that, there's the preacher that speaks too much. Or here's the guy that gets in my face too much. Or here's the guy with smelly socks or whatever that thing may be. She was known by her bad stuff. And she invited herself into that house that day. And she fell at his feet, as you know the story. She began to weep. She began to take 
her tears and wash his feet. She took something very expensive, some oil, and anointed him or poured it on him as an act of worship. Jesus turned to Simon and said, I expected something from you. And I'm disappointed. You knew better. Oh, if God looks at us and says, come on, you're keeping all the dang chips to yourself. You knew better. Ah, the garage door just went up and we're standing there in our boxers like, ah, forgot. I forgot. That's what happened in Simon's house that day. See, in Luke 7, Simon turned, Christ turned toward the woman. And then he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water, man. I expected that. Why? Because you're a water carrier. You understand that water gives life. It washes. You had that message. She, you didn't give me any water. But she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her, their hair. You didn't give me a kiss. You come from a people that have been kissed by God. And you didn't even give me one. You can hear the expectation failure in this story. But this woman, from the time I enter, has not stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you didn't even put any oil on my head. You see, you're a water carrier. You, you, you understand what that means, right? You've been kissed by God. You get what that means, right, Simon? It's a bag of chips, dude. You didn't give me one. And he had the oil. As we are carriers of the oil of Christ in our life. And God is saying in the story, look, she did it. What about you? Because you forgot, Simon, who you were. You forgot the marvelous story that was involved. Well, how do I do that? Here's what I would say to you. How do I act more fairly? How do I not just keep all the chips for myself? Here it is. Count the number of chips in your bag. Think about your account. Think honestly. Stop and just think. It's like, wow, man, I got a lot here. I've got Egypt. I've got the story of Egypt. I've got all that. I've got to pour it out. I've got to get it out. I've got to reach my hand in my, in my bag of chips and give it out. I, and, and this is what happened when, when they were told in Deuteronomy, teach your children. Teach your children, teach their children. Because when we perpetuate, he's just talking about discipleship. It's not just Matthew 28, it's Deuteronomy 4. Teach them to teach others to teach others. And we perpetuate it. And when we're perpetuating it, we start to remember, oh, this is awesome. The more chips you give out, the more you remember how great the chips are. You keep them in that Ziploc bag all to yourself and they start to grow stale. Second, God says this, not only do you act fair, give out what you've received, redeem people, but since you are redeemed, I'm asking you to love mercy. Not be merciful, but love mercy. There's a difference. Watch this. In Luke 7, when this Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Christ, saw this, saw this woman come in, he said to himself, this was what was rumbling around in his thought process. If Christ were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's trash. She's a sinner. You see that the definition for mercy rolls like this. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So 
when Simon is looking at this woman, he's just agitated. Because in his mind, she's not getting what she deserves. It wasn't that he just wasn't merciful. He was upset that Christ wasn't, that Christ was merciful. And we're saying, we'll love mercy. Why? Because the whole story is about God being merciful to you. I mean, it's like traffic. Come on, let's be honest. You're in traffic. Mm, has ever happened to you? This guy's, you know, he's cutting in and out of traffic on the highway. And then later, about a few miles down, you see he's pulled over by the police. Huh? I'm, you know what I'm talking about. All right, who, be honest. You're happy about it, right? I mean, you're like, ha, 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 all the way past him. I know I am. Because <laughs> he got what he deserved, right? God has said, no, 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 no. You're a mercy receiver. And because you've received mercy, you're a recipient. You've got to love mercy and other people. You see, when they get off the hook, you think, oh, man, good for you because I got off the hook too. Not like, ah, oh, he didn't get his. He didn't get I'm always seeking out the, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be right up. I'm going to be in your grill. Yeah. You know, there are people that way. They're always trying to make sure everything, all the T's are crossed and all the dies are dots for the other person. God said, no, love mercy because mercy has found you. Finally, well, let me say this. I, I, I got to say this before we move on. This woman understood something that day. She understood who she was. Everybody reminded her of it, but they didn't have to. She knew. No one had to open her garage door and expose her. It was always open. You see, the problem with Simon is he forgot who he was. A sinner. In need of rescue. So Jesus says to her, says to him, Simon, here's the deal. She loved me a lot. Because he who is forgiven little loves little. And that was the problem, Simon. You forgot the smell of Egypt. You forgot who, who you were. You were a slave. You forgot that. The very thing. Now watch. Here it is again. How many times does God have to tell us Ephesians 2? Remember. Remember. That you too were in Egypt separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. I remember the days that this happy-go-lucky rock band person cried day after day after day after day because I thought it was too late that I had messed it up so bad that there was no rescue from Egypt. I remember that in my own life. No rescue. I remember what it's like to feel the weight of slavery of sin. Christ says, remember, don't forget those days when you were separate. You had no meaning in life. You had no purpose in life. You had no forgiveness. And you probably had aliophobia where you wondered, am I good enough? And Christ said, I settled that. I've, the priest has pierced that. 
And now the plague is over. Without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away in Egypt have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Thank you, God. Finally, let me say this. Not only does God ask his redeemed people to act fairly, to give out what we received, to love mercy, but also to walk humbly with our God. So let me say this to you. That day, Simon invited Jesus into his house. That day, the sinful woman invited Jesus to come into her home. And there was a big difference. My greatest concern for God's redeemed people is that they have invited him into their house and not their home. They have done the right thing, the acceptable thing, and said, God, I want you to be, I I need you. I want you to come in my house. And when I need you, I, I can call on you. You see, the difference is when you invite someone into your home, that means I'm inviting you into everything. You, in my family, in my thoughts, in my choices, in everything I do. I want you to come and live and be part of everything and remind me that you are part of my home, that part of my centerness. I need that. You see, we're told in First John, we close with this verse. Here it is again. See that what you have heard from the beginning, the gospel story, remains in you. And if it does, you will also remain in the Son and the Father. Can I read that again? See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, and only if it does, only if it's just all the time stirring in you, if it is, and it's remaining in you, and living in the home, your core, if it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed, so that we're like, ah, man, I blew it. Doggone it. I kept all the chips for myself. I love mercy for myself, but I didn't love it for you. Ah, man, I invite you into the house, God, but I didn't invite you into my home. Ah, man, don't you, you don't want to miss Christ's expectations, not to win his favor, but to be in rhythm with him. So let me end with this crazy story. Years ago, um, I was in a church where we did fundraising by going to a major league baseball stadium and helping in the concession stands to sell concessions and uh, to uh, raise money. We raised thousands of dollars for mission mission trips. So our first night, we show up. And uh, the place, uh, you know, once you work in a place, you know you'll never eat from, from that same place. Very true in a, a baseball stadium. You know, you're walking on the floor, and it's just got layers of Coca-Cola and, and soft drinks and and beer and nacho cheese that was there from last season. I mean, you know, and so when you're walking, it literally, you know, you're, it can really peel a guy's shoe off just by walking because it's so. So the first night, you know, we were rookies. We didn't know. I had I never done a, uh, you know, a, a, a soft drink uh, thing or a, a beer or nacho cheese or anything. We're all learning. And I'm like, so we're goofing it up, right? 
And there's a supervisor there trying to help you out, but, but you know, things are moving fast. you got people, hundreds of people coming, so, you know, like, ah, man, I missed a nacho cheese thing, and just throw it in the trash, right? And I like, you know, this much Coke and this much foam and all that. Ah, man, just, so all night long, we're goofing the thing up, drop a popcorn box, whatever it is, you know, nacho tray, and we're just th- throwing them in the trash, right? After the game, it's around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. It's like, okay, let's start. Let's do the cleanup. Okay, let's do the cleanup. It's a horrible job. You're cleaning up all this stuff. And, and um, so now it's about midnight. And you're like, whew, wow, it's hard work. I wonder how much we earned, right? And so now the supervisor says, okay, it's time for the count. I'm like, okay, let's do the count. What is the count? I don't know what the count is. Well, we count all of the nacho cheese cups, all of the beer cups, the soft drink cups, the popcorn boxes, everything. Because what we didn't know is they expect that the number sold and the number remaining equals the number that they counted before you got there, but you didn't know it. So, for example, if there were a thousand nacho cups and at the end of the day, you there were 250 gone, sold, uh, then there should be uh, 750 uh, in the stack, right? You know where I'm going. So here we are. It's midnight. We're sweaty. We're tired. And we're counting nacho cups, nacho cheese cups. One, two, three, four, five, six. At the end of the night, here's the message. Okay. So it looks like you owe us $69. I'm like, what? We came here to make money because we're throwing everything away. Now, the next night, we came back. See, we knew the score. We knew don't throw anything away. Make sure that, you know, keep it. So we ran out of kielbasas. And so walked back to the walk-in freezer, had a pretty hefty box here of frozen kielbasas. We're walking across the floor. Ooh, I lost my shoe. When the bottom of the box, Hundreds of kill frozen kielbasas all over the floor. Here's where the confession comes in. And while you never want to eat in a stadium again. No, we didn't serve them as such. Like, couldn't do that. Got a conscience. We're a church. Hey, get it. So we started a quick assembly line of kielbasa washing. And so we had us, okay, hand me one, wash it, rinse it, rinse it off, dry it. I mean, we're doing this with hundreds of kielbasas. The reason is that now we knew the expectation and we never forgot the costs of the first night. We did it multiple times, I mean, 20 times every single night. The cost of it was in our mind. The expectations were clear. The question is today, is the cost in your mind clearly? Because when you remember the story vividly, it will alter how you act in this life. If like the sinful woman, you think, oh, let me tell you something. How could I not... Give out the chips because God has put a lot in my... If I forget, you don't get a chip. That's why God says, remember. If like this, the woman, this sinful woman says, oh, I can't believe 
He touched me. Oh, guess what? I'm not only going to love it when he touches me. I'm going to love it when he touches you. I'm going to love it when you get mercy. Oh, Bob got mercy. Woo! Brad's like, Bob didn't get it. He didn't get the speeding ticket. Really ticks me off. And when I remember the story, I'm going to tell Jesus, don't come to my house. Come to my home. Come to my home. Because I remember. And I won't let it slip. Father, thank you for this time. God, we come together for so many reasons. Today we came together to remember. So many times, God, in the Old Testament, you said, let me remind you, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You did that for a reason, God. Because we need reminding. We do. You know that. If we don't remind ourselves frequently, then we become stale like Simon. And we keep our water and our kisses and our chips and our oil all to ourselves. And we just shrivel up and die inside when the expectation is that we'll be giving out. I'm convinced, God, that when we give out, when we share the story of the gospel, when we invest in disciples, it is an act of remembering. So often in the New Testament, God, we're reminded of who we were before Christ. And in fact, that one of your last acts, Christ, was to sit down with your disciples and say, do this frequently to remember. Father, today I pray for your church. We're apt to forget. We're familiar, God, with the story. We'll never forget the contents. But we're apt to forget the smells, the weights, the feel of Egypt. We're apt, God, to forget the cost, the real cost of a son being pierced to stop the plague. We're apt to forget the excitement the spectacular excitement of crossing the Jordan into new life. We're apt to forget, God, that you've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. But if we remember, God, oh, we will act fairly. If we remember, God, we will love mercy in other people's life. And if we remember, God, will say, come to our home today. So, Father, today I simply pray this for your church. I pray that they'll remember in a vivid way. I pray this, God, in the name of the one who makes this story possible, Christ Jesus. Amen.